All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to tell you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, with regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list uh, in order to subscribe at the beginning of each calendar quarter. Chen uh, accepts a certain number of new subscribers. Uh, that place to go to to put your name on a list is miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Chen has had a, an excellent track record over the years, and, uh, and people are willing uh, to pay a, a nice fee for Chen's letter. Um, in fact, he's uh, for for reasons I think that will become obvious to anyone who subscribes to that letter. It's uh, it's really very worthwhile doing so, in my view. Miningstocks.com uh, is, as I mentioned, is where you can also sign up for my newsletter um, and uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And I am uh, becoming increasingly bullish on the gold mining shares right now. I think they're uh, on the one on the one hand uh, down very substantially from where they were, and it's that these points of time in markets uh, that it's most difficult to buy things because no one else seems to be doing so. But it's uh, at these times in, uh, in market history when uh, really the successful investors make most of their money. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, uh, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to uh, also encourage you to continue your comments, uh, questions, uh, whatever, have them uh, sent to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. Uh, and I would like to also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is jtaylormedia. Uh, I want to thank each of you uh, again uh, for telling your friends about this show. It has grown over the years uh, uh, by word of mouth. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors also for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show, Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Columbus Gold Corp, Cornerstone Capital, Wellgreen Platinum, and today uh, a new sponsor is Dynacor Gold Mines. Dynacor is really a very interesting company, and we will be talking to the CEO, Jean Martineau, next week. Uh, but Dynacor is a company, a gold mining company, that is able to make money uh, in up markets as well as down markets. I was just looking at the nine-month performance of this company. Uh, the first nine months of this year, it's earned 13 cents. Uh, its shares are trading today at $1.51. Only a $36 million market cap. 
But uh, you know, in spite of the the drastic drop in profits for most gold mining companies, Dynacor has earned 13 cents through the first nine months of this year. And yes, it's down from 19 cents last year. Uh, but the point about this company and its business, unique business model is it's able to make money in down markets as well as up markets. Uh, and Jean Martineau will be with us uh, to talk more about that. I like the company also because it has very significant upside potential from some exploration projects and will be producing gold from its own gold mine uh, probably as early as the uh, beginning of next year. So uh, lots to look forward to and a growth, uh, a real growth story in my view, and one that is constantly making money and not needing to go out to the equity markets to raise capital, which is real the real bugaboo for most uh, junior mining companies. They have to constantly go back and raise money uh, to stay alive and to put holes in the ground to drill and explore. Not so with Dynacor. So looking forward to my discussion next week with Jean Martineau. Um, some very interesting relationships, I think, that um, are starting to take place in the equity markets that I, I believe, uh, equity and debt markets that I believe are very, very worth noting. And Michael Oliver pointed out a, uh, his excellent work, and I do hope to have Michael on this show sometime in the near future. November 29th, he pointed out, uh, both November 29th and December 1st, uh, he put out missives and charts showing how high-yield instruments in U.S. banks uh, are not performing well relative to uh, in the case of the banks, relative to the S&P, and with respect to the high-yield instruments, uh, relative to TLT, that is the U.S. government debt. This is indicating stress in the uh, riskier markets, and um, I think it's something that we should really keep our eyes on. Also, um, I have looked at and noticed uh, the relative performance of gold to silver. This is an insight that comes to me from Bob Hoy in Vancouver. Bob has pointed out in the past that when this happens, and, and especially as the uh, silver-to-gold ratio reaches certain thresholds, it's starting to indicate that there are some very severe problems uh, in the debt markets. In the over-leveraged global financial system, I think this is the number one threat to all of us going forward, and whether we uh, are going to see how this is going to be resolved is, is of course, anybody's guess, but the, we'll have a couple of different views on today's show. There is the deflationary view that many people, seems to be more of the mainstream view, the Federal, uh, the Fed, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve is expressing concerns about deflation and not enough inflation. Uh, well, that's certainly not something that I buy, uh, that we don't have enough inflation. Uh, that's, uh, that, that is, uh, I, th- I think, a bogus argument. But, um, you know, there's others then, uh, namely our main guest today, John Williams, uh, who thinks that we are really, you know, we're really facing the prospects of a hyperinflation. And that's why I've, I've uh, sort of, I've titled today's show, Perched on a Knife's Edge, Deflationary Depression or Hyperinflation. Uh, Gene, Gene Epstein is going to be with me in just a couple of minutes uh, to talk uh, perhaps more about the deflationary side of things, uh, but John Williams uh, really does take a, a – he's very, very concerned about not only inflation. John thinks inflation rates are much higher than what the government says they are, but John also thinks that uh, the dollar will will have a, a major decline uh, globally and that, that 
some point in time when fiat monies are no longer uh, accepted that we will see a major increase in the price of everything, a hyperinflationary increase. Well, we can only hope and pray that John is wrong about that, but we do want to hear what he has to say. So John will be with us at about half past the hour, and Gene Epstein is going to be with us uh, in just a couple of minutes as well to talk about uh, a very interesting article that appeared in Barron's a couple of weeks ago uh, by Donald Brudeau. I'm sorry about uh, actually it was written by um, the uh, one of the authors, one of the editors at uh, Barron's, and he's talking about. Uh, he, he is talking about the uh, the gold markets and uh, gold is no longer slumbering or some such topic is what he talked about. But no, next week, um, Gene is going to be with us to, to talk today uh, in just a couple of minutes about the uh, New York City Junto meeting that's coming up. And a very interesting speaker is going to be there, Donald Boudreau. Uh, he's going to talk about uh, something called uh, a title is Half Wits and Hypocrites. Uh, it should be a very interesting topic, and Gene will tell us more about that as we uh, as we talk to Gene in just a couple of minutes. The uh, gold markets yesterday really started to show some signs of stress. I thought we we were seeing um, uh, the real shortage. Really, uh, or we were seeing. Um, the uh, the lease rates for one month rising dramatically above even above the one year lease rates, uh, and we're seeing the uh, the GoFo rate um, uh, turning negative, very negative. In fact, uh, very highly un- unusual, uh, very unusual for the gold markets to react this way, indicating that there is a tremendous stress for physical gold. Um, somebody is looking to get their hands on physical gold and they're willing to pay more to borrow gold for one month to deliver it somewhere or to put it in, in somebody's possession, willing to pay more to borrow gold for one month than they're willing to pay uh, for U.S. dollars for one month. This is uh, highly unusual along with backwardation, which is another uh, something else that is uh, highly unusual, uh, indicating enormous amounts of stress uh, for physical gold as opposed to the paper markets, which really, are, uh, which really uh, are, have little to do with gold. I would argue uh, you could call them widgets or feathers. Uh, it really matters not because gold is not really being traded to any great extent. Uh, there are people that are really gambling on the direction of gold. Uh, High-frequency traders, what have you, people are in there. Uh, with enormous amounts and a, and a couple of large produce, a large uh, banking interest, uh, bullion interest that are in there uh, playing this game on both sides of this game in enormous amounts. Uh, and, and then those, can, uh, those contracts basically get canceled out before delivery date. And so it's really uh, more of a gambling casino than anything else. Well, this is a topic, of course, we've talked to Gene, uh, to uh, David Jensen about on a regular basis. Uh, but we do have to go to commercial breakdown. When we come back, Gene Epstein will be with me uh, to talk about New York City Junto and also the article that I just mentioned in Barron's having to do with gold. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network production of platinum and palladium is heavily concentrated in south africa and russia rising costs labor strife and ever more challenging underground mining conditions have led to serious and ongoing supply deficits 
New sources of PGMs from stable regions are needed to meet the increasing global demand. Wellgreen Platinum's PGM Nickel Project in Canada's Yukon hosts one of the world's largest concentrations of platinum, palladium, and nickel. Excellent management, favorable jurisdiction, strong supply and demand fundamentals, and near-term catalysts. Visit wellgreenplatinum.com to learn more. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE MX Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein. We like to have Gene on, us, on with us the first Tuesday of every month because he, uh, he leads a very interesting discussion at the New York City Junto uh, that's held on the first Thursday of each month at the General Society Library. That's at 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. It starts around 7.30 or uh, 8 o'clock. The main speaker starts to talk, but uh, it is always a very interesting event. I try to make it and plan to make it this Thursday uh, every month uh, because it's always intellectually stimulating. Gene does a fantastic job of leading the discussion, and then it, it's opened up to people uh, to respond to the uh, to the main speaker and his uh, and his items. Uh, his his views can be challenged and are most often challenged, and uh, it's always a very interesting discussion. So, Gene, welcome. I'm really glad to have you back with me again. Good to be back. Uh, and uh, by the way, I'm I'm grateful that uh, over the last uh, several months we began uh, putting uh, the Junto evenings on a podcast. And uh, for listeners, it's uh, Junto is spelled J-U-N-T-O. And uh, go into iTunes or the Junto website, you can hear a podcast of my talk on uh, on the uh, Thomas Piketty book. Uh, you can hear a very interesting talk. Actually, I guess the one you missed last month, uh, Jay, from Brian Kaplan on uh, economists from George Mason University on uh, on uh, the case against education, a very strong libertarian argument, which uh, engendered a lot of discussion. And so uh, if you miss Agenda, you can listen to it on podcast. But if you come, then, of course, you can uh, your voice can be recorded for posterity if you make a comment or ask a question, because as you indicate, Jay, it's very interactive. That's a bit of a difference about our format. We do allow, uh, we spend more more time our audience questions and comments um, in, a, in about a two about an hour and 45 minutes the speaker has about half of that time and then the comments and questions from the audience take up the other half and uh, interspersed throughout the speaker's remarks uh, this time around we're having uh, 
Donald Boudreau back, Don Boudreau, who's a George Mason uh, economist as well. And uh, he distinguishes himself because he's sort of a latter-day Henry Hazlitt, uh, the mm-hmm. great uh, economic free market journalist. Much of, you know, when Henry Hazlitt did, uh, economic, did a book called Economics in One Lesson, uh, he, um, he was essentially commenting on all of the crazy nostrums of the media and of the mainstream on on the subject of economics, he had, as you may know, the uh, that book began actually taking the, the case from Bastian on the broken window idea that that whenever a window is broken, it's good for the economy. Yeah, just began with that one. And um, Don Boudreau writes a letter almost every day to the media, usually very funny and laser sharp uh, comments uh, addressing the various fallacies, and uh, of course. It's so much dismaying that uh, Don has at times uh, addressed the broken window fallacy, but he turned that into a great joke. There's an economist uh, named Peter Marici. I have to name him because um, he's on my list of Bettenwars along with Krugman and Stiglitz and other <laughs> Nobel laureates. But Marici actually wrote about, I forget which hurricane was going to be wonderful for the economy. And, uh, and Don uh, wrote, I think, the wittiest repost about how uh, destructive hurricanes Came to supposedly wonderful. He offered to go over to Marici's house down in Maryland and uh, with with crowbars and hammers and split it apart, wreck the home, and uh, so that it would be great for Marici's economic uh, <laughs> well-being. And then he said, and as an added bonus, I won't clean up the mess uh, afterwards, so that I can create jobs in the neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> and that was the level of Marici's economic analysis. And uh, so what I'm going to do with Don, as I did uh, did two years ago. Don, Don's book was called a, coll- a collection uh, published uh, two years ago called Halfwits and Hypocrites. You know, letters from Cafe Hayek, Halfwits and Hypocrites. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be sort of be in the guise of Paul Krugman or Joseph Stiglitz or others who commit economic fallacies, and then Don is going to respond. Oh, uh, with that should be critique. fun. And then the audience will comment. So uh, it's going to be very interactive, and uh, again, should be a lot of fun. This will be an evening where economics can be fun, although, of course, somewhat dismaying um, to learn that so many of the fallacies that uh, just will never go away keep persisting in the New York Times and elsewhere. Yeah, of course, your show is promoting uh, truth. The, the dismal science, indeed, it is. Uh, given the uh, the mainstream thought these days, Gene, hey, you know, got to correct you. Just you know, you know, of course, Jay. Do we have to have time out? The dismal science is actually probably it's okay to say that, but you uh, you may know that uh, that that it was called the dismal science by uh, what's his name, some Thomas. Uh, why am I forgetting his last name? Uh, but he called the dism- dismal science because he was pro-slavery. The British, mm. or the, he was pro-slavery, and he thought that the Economists like John Stuart Mill, who were anti-slavery, were practitioners of the dismal science because they thought that uh, that black people were just as good as white people. That was uh, that was why it was called the dismal science. So it's an oh. honorific. It's an honorific, Jay, to be called the oh. dismal science. Well, I, I look at it as a dismal science, given the fact that uh, yeah. so many people, including those that you just named, uh, yeah. are, are really, are really do believe in, uh, uh, you know, in this hurricane thesis or this, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, it, and and so we send, uh, I guess, uh, sort of uh, the war. Um, machinery that we have yeah. also, right, can be great. We we go into countries and destroy them, and then we build them back up, and it's all great for GDP. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, in uh, theory. Yeah. But absolutely. that's the religion yeah. of our day, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, indeed it is. Although, you know, I, I'll tell you, it, it's, it's, a, it's odd that the, that the fallacy persists, even though, by the way, when uh, Bush, uh, when George W. Bush invaded Iraq, uh, the economy in that quarter definitely uh, tanked. And there was definitely a lot of pessimism in the mm-hmm. economy, and a lot of businessmen were holding back, consumers were. There, of course, there was a fear of a, an attack by terrorists. Uh, and so, uh, palpably, we had evidence that uh, the market, it doesn't especially like war, but yeah. uh, they still persist in these uh, in, in these in these fallacies that uh, our war expenditures are so great for the economy. Well, I suppose they're great for some people's economy, the people that are getting paid to produce the machinery and uh, and, and so on, and the bureaucracy in Washington, which is unbelievably growing uh, at such a rate. But Gene, sure. uh, mm-hmm. anything else you'd like to add about Mr. Boudreau? Well, no, uh, basically, come. I've I've arranged a series of slides. You'll hear about how why Paul Krugman endorses you know higher minimum wage. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll hear about uh, why, of course, uh, politicians and uh, and even certain uh, and uh, and Donald Trump is all for uh, tariffs. Uh, you'll hear some illustrious names and uh, uh, associated with uh, age-old economic fallacies, and uh, and Don will uh, be uh, addressing those fallacies and addressing those uh, those illustrious names and uh, and how deluded they uh, they persist in being. Well, it's always a good time. I should tell our listeners that somewhere between 70 and 150 people or so, it's a, it's a nice size group, but it's an interactive group. And it's not only uh, a lot of really smart people, Gene. They're people that are very well educated. You know, I think at a time when the attention span of average Americans, especially younger Americans, is so short, yeah. uh, this, is a, this is a group of people that get together and really dig deep into uh, certain topics and lots of ideas that are stimulating. I, I tell you, I just like to go there and just listen to the various uh, smart people uh, ideas and some of them maybe you don't agree with but that's okay it's it's always good uh, to to be able to to mix it up a little bit and have ideas exchanged so I think you do a marvelous job of that I just really like to appeal to my listeners mm-hmm. all of those of you who are in the New York City metropolitan area that's the General Society Library 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenue New York City near Grand Central Terminal and uh, the show gets underway uh, doors are open around 7 I believe Gene but 7 yeah. 30 to 8, the sort of, uh, and then at 8 o'clock, the main speaker uh, talks. You usually invite people uh, if they have some announcement that's uh, apropos yes. to come up yes. and talk about it before the main speaker comes up. It's, if, it's, you're, it's a, uh, if you're looking for a job, you can make a two minute advertisement about your skills, and who knows, maybe somebody will hire you. And uh, indeed, uh, you know, in an age when uh, we are dominated by sound bites, you know, I, I have an affection for William F. Buckley's show, Firing Line. Most of the, mm-hmm. Much of the time, I actually disagreed with him, but uh, he he had people talk in paragraphs. You on your uh, podcast, we can talk in paragraphs. So when uh, when we need a paragraph, uh, rather than in sound bites, and uh, of course in an evening of interactive discussion, we can also talk in paragraphs, and that's uh, that's very important the, uh, for any kind of uh, interesting thought. Well, interesting thought, and I think it's very good, very important for society to hold it together that we start yeah. to think about things and not just mm-hmm. react impulsively, mm-hmm. which seems yeah. to be uh, too much of the way things are going. With a minute or two left here yet, oh, yeah. I would like to just ask you a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, Up and Down Wall Street, written mm-hmm. by your colleague Randall Forsyth, mm-hmm. uh, titled Gold No Longer Slumbers. Well, I can tell yeah. you, Gene, that as, mm-hmm. as one who's really invested probably more heavily than I should be in gold, I still feel like it's slumbering, mm-hmm. uh, and I feel mm-hmm. my gold shares are not doing very 
very well. And mm-hmm. uh, so when I saw that, mm-hmm. uh, it was encouraging to see a mainstream publication like Barron's, which I consider it to be. Uh, so could you just mm-hmm. pass along perhaps uh, Mr. Forsythe's thesis a little bit yeah. on why he thinks gold may no longer be slumbering? Yeah, well, of course, I've known, uh, I've been with Barron's for 22 years, and when I joined Barron's, Randy had been, Randy Forsyth had been with Barron's for about 10 years, so of course we've, uh, we've, we've spent a lot of, uh, time together, and, uh, uh, I, uh, Randy wrote, uh, a very, uh, well-written, very insightful piece in which he pulled together a lot of interesting indicators that gold could be coming out of its slumber. Uh, I, I believe, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Randy about this, but, uh, I believe actually there was there's only one glaring omission, which is uh, that Randy expected, Randy talked about uh, the, the constructive bullish outlook for gold, but then uh, he said, well, you know, but you know, he doesn't expect inflation to heat up. But, ah. uh, my, but, but my, that, that, that's a, potentially a problem. My only point that uh, Randy, the glaring omission on Randy's part, honestly, is that, uh, that uh, the, the bull market in gold that started in about 02, 03, uh-huh. And that, uh, and essentially, of course, we you know it's still a bull market. We were we were talking about three hundred dollar gold, two hundred fifty dollar gold, what in 0203. right? And um, and so and then hitting highs of of close to two thousand. That was not accompanied by officially measured inflation running very high at all. And no. so now why now so my, my when I lecture on gold, uh, I, uh, I generally point out that really um, the gold the, the the reason why there was a bear market in gold from eighty into the early aughts was because of the great moderation, uh, at least the image of the great moderation, that, that, that those who ran the global economy finally had things under control, that the volatility of the markets and the volatility of the economy and, and generally had been tamed. And mm-hmm. then uh, I think the gold, the gold bulls began to see by about two, a couple of years before that, that began to suck, that, that it was, a, that was not happening. And that's why gold rose. My point, obviously, from that is that gold uh, rises not just because uh, uh, officially measured prices are rising. Gold prices rise because the market begins to wake up to the fact that uh, the central bankers uh, and uh, those in charge of the treasuries around the world uh, do not have things under control. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't have to be uh, price inflation, uh, just as it didn't have to be price inflation that pulled up the price of gold from 03 up to essentially the present. Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically economic instability. I'm terrible at timing, but I believe, I believe that the 10-year outlook, sooner or later, maybe it'll be sooner rather than later, sooner or later, um, the market will wake up to the fact that the global economy is, 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 is still unstable, that there is no great moderation returning. And uh, so the 10-year outlook for gold uh, is, is, uh, is essentially uh, bullish from that perspective, not the perspective of price inflation, but from the perspective of global instability. And mm-hmm. that's what I think. That's what I think. Uh, Randy, in an otherwise very uh, good piece, uh, neglected uh, to uh, to mention. Yeah, in fact, Randy was mentioning. He sort of drew some parallels to the 1930s and, yeah. and talking mm-hmm. about the beggar thy neighbor banks, uh, central right. banks, as you're talking about issuing huge amounts, almost endless amounts of new money uh, creation. Uh, it isn't really triggering out into any kind of, uh, certainly not any kind of hyperinflation. Although John Williams coming on in just a couple of minutes will probably. Uh, uh, will probably tell, tell us that high, that inflation is higher than uh, than what the government
government is acknowledging, but even John would admit that we're not anywhere near any kind of inflation rates, I think, that we were uh, near well, in the 1970s. But, 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 by, but by the way, Jay, as you know, I, I was getting semantic on you about dismal signs. You know that, uh, that you know, the, the, the instability, you know, the, the, the Austrians, in fact, all the dictionaries 100 years ago, <laughs> used to define inflation as a huge expansion in the money supply. It, yes. it, whether or not it affected officially measured prices. And, yes. uh, and so, obviously, and as you know, there was a officially measured inflation in the 20s sometimes fell but that didn't that uh, didn't belie the fact that that there was that there was inflation and mm-hmm. that that inflation led uh, to the crash of 29 and and, mm-hmm. and to the ensuing depression so again uh, it's almost a semantic issue i think that the 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 the, the money uh, authorities are inflating whether it's affecting consumer prices or not is is not i think a central point i think it's really mm-hmm. that they are inflating the money supply and that could be affecting assets and affecting other things as well. It most importantly uh, creates instability in the economy. It affects instability, according to the Austrian business cycle theory, uh, with respect to uh, to the way uh, investment is allocated and the way risks are taken. So that's well, a crucial point to my mind. Um, no question about it, yeah. Gene, and the, the malinvestment concept that yes. occurs mm-hmm. when interest yeah. rates are pushed down way below whatever they should be if, mm-hmm. uh, if it was a free market. And there's mm-hmm. no question we're going to be paying, I think, one heck of a price in the future. I think we're already paying a price in terms of unemployment and so forth. But that's, uh, uh, that's many different topics here. Uh, just mm-hmm. uh, in summing up, Gene, I'd like to ask you, uh, I hope you don't mind me asking you. If no. you were to give the United States economy a grade now from A to F, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what would you give it? Well, uh, right now, you know, I think it's going to muddle through. I think it's going to a grade. You know, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll say that I, I do believe, uh, by the way, that you know, the, the, that the black gold oil, the crude oil, has gotten, as you know, a lot cheaper. That's a, that's of course uh, a tribute to entrepreneurs. Uh, that's a huge boost to the uh, U.S. economy and to oil-consuming nations. Uh, and so I, I believe that. Uh, well, I believe that if you want to use official uh, GDP. Measures that there will be three and a half percent growth over the next year and a half. There's, that probably the um, the instability of the uh, the inherent instability is not going to affect the economy. So uh, I guess I'm giving it a B. Uh, certainly, uh, there should be you know in a free market you should have six percent growth. Uh, in any kind of uh, market that isn't hobbled by Obama Obamanomics, we should be having four to five to six uh, four to five percent growth. But three and a half percent I think is probably what we will have over the next. Uh, between now and the end of next year. Okay, well, a B. Uh, that's that's pretty good in my books. I mean, a no, B's no, are, I, I, oh, yeah. I mean, not a D is in dog, but a B is in boy. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I certainly, uh, many times in my college mm-hmm. career, was happy with a B. I'll say that. So, uh, you know, but not one of those guys that got all A's. So B's are pretty good. Uh, I yeah. I personally probably mm-hmm. would would call it a C minus or something, but then I'm more of a pessimist than you are, Gene. I'm always glad to have you on because you do provide some sunshine and some hope. So uh, it's always good to always always good to talk to you. And I really look forward to to meeting up with you uh, this Thursday at the New York City June Show. Thank sure. you very much, Gene, for being with us once again. My pleasure. Bye bye. So, folks, uh, we're going to go to commercial breakdown. When we come back, uh, John Williams is going to be with us. Uh, John will have some very interesting things to say. His outlook for inflation, well, John thinks that we could be heading for hyperinflation. Uh, We'll ask him why, so don't go away. We'll be right back with John Williams.
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Walter John Williams, or better known simply as John Williams. John's been with us a number of times before, but for the benefit of those who may not be familiar, and I can't imagine there's too many of you out there listening to this show that wouldn't be familiar with John Williams, but he has a very good, uh, very strong uh, academic background, having uh, gone to uh, to Dartmouth, uh, graduated from Dartmouth, and then uh, took a, an MBA from Dartmouth as well and uh, has really been an independent economist and and I think that's so important because uh, John is free to say what he believes and uh, and he uh, you know his subscribers pay for his independent thought and that has allowed him to provide what I think is a very excellent service uh, to his subscribers of which I have been one for the last number of years I really do enjoy his work and highly recommend it and would suggest that uh, all you who are listening out there go to shadowstats.com that's uh, www.shadowstats.com for more information on John's, John's work and also to sign up for his letter welcome John it's really good to have you with me again uh, thank you very much for having me Jay it's uh, it's always excellent uh, having you on because I know that you have some very controversial views on uh, on the world and on the economy and uh, particularly on inflation. Uh, you might have heard the last few remarks from my good friend Gene Epstein. And by the way, he has a very high regard for you as well, although I don't think he agrees on some of the issues. But Gene I, I like, does, I like uh, Gene. He's a good guy. 
He, he is a good guy. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that we discuss at the New York City Junto uh, is uh, diversity of opinion. I think um, it, it would be great to have you there sometime, John, if we could get Gene talked into having you come on as a guest. But uh, I, I, I shouldn't put Gene on the spot like that, I suppose. But in any event, uh, Gene's giving the economy a B. I told him, I said, I would, gen- I would feel generous in giving it a C-. minus. Uh, how, how do you feel about I'll- the economy? I'll give it an F. <laughs> and, uh, an F for failure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh-huh. what, what you have here um, at the moment is an economy that uh, in no way recovered from um, the official recession. Um, if you look at the uh, headline numbers, the economy plunged into uh, 2009, mid-2009, starts recovering, generally keeps moving higher. Now it's expanded. It's seven uh, percent above where it was before the uh, recession, uh, but you're not seeing that any anywhere else. That's a, that's it's an artifact of very poor quality reporting in the GDP. Um, I'll contend the underlying reality is that the economy indeed plunged into 2009, but then you had a period of stagnation uh, at a low level, and in many ways it's starting to turn down again. Um, the uh, you, you can see that in uh, your, your housing numbers, the consumer confidence numbers, I mean, yes, the consumer confidence numbers are up and down, and maybe they're up one month and people get all excited. But if you look at them in uh, historical context, uh, the sentiment, the, the, the confidence, they're, they're at levels that uh, historically have been in deep in recessions, never at uh, a peak of, uh, of economic activity. We're seeing recession-level numbers there. And if you look at the long-term plot, it, it, it plunges, and then it's stagnant, maybe moving a little bit higher. Um, you look at uh, consumer income, uh, uh, median household income adjusted for inflation. Uh, same pattern. The economy, as the economy starts to turn up in um, 2009, the, the headline GDP, um, the uh, consumer median household income sinks and continues to sink into 2011, and, and it's stagnant basically, as, as still still such as uh, most recently reported. The consumer here drives the U.S. economy. That's uh, personal consumption, uh, add in uh, residential investment, uh, 72, 73% of the gross domestic product. Uh, the, the consumer is not seeing uh, real growth, inflation adjusted growth in income, uh, doesn't have the confidence uh, uh, to go out and uh, really take on a lot of debt. And if you look at the consumer credit outstanding, which the Fed publishes, um, that number is showing uh, sharp growth, but all the growth in that number, and this is before any inflation uh, consideration, has been in the uh, uh, federal ownership of uh, student loans. Mm-hmm. These are not loans that are going into uh, uh, purchases of uh, consumer goods. You have a liquidity squeeze on the, on the consumer, which is making it impossible to have sustained uh, positive economic growth and personal consumption. And without that, you've not only not had a recovery in the broad economy, uh, you don't have one pending. And the, um, you look at the GDP numbers, they're, they're, they're nonsense. I mean, if you, if you take them, if you accept them, um, we have now uh, 3.9% growth. Uh, it's annualized in the, in the uh, third quarter and 4.6% in the, in the second quarter. For two quarters in a row like that, that's the strongest economy we've seen since 2003. Um, th- th- does this feel like the, the, the best economy we've been in in uh, 11 years? 
Um, Main Street USA sure doesn't uh, look at it that way. You saw the the election results. Normally when people are suffering um, in the pocketbook, that's a major issue, and you get the votes against the incumbent, which which, which happened here. Yeah. Um, if you look at the polling results, uh, you know, how's the economy doing? The response there was typical of an economic contraction, not an average economic growth, let alone a booming um, economy. If you look at... Um, the S&P 500, um, adjusted for all the gimmicks with uh, share changes and such, and adjusted by the government's CPI inflation, um, the sales of the S&P 500 um, basically have been uh, flat over the last uh, couple of years and have turned uh, turned down in the uh, in the third quarter. They were negative in the third quarter, not mm-hmm. not to the upside. Which mm-hmm. you see here, this is not this is not uh, a, a real. Um, economic uh, boom, and it, it's being used as a prop, a false prop, uh, for the U.S. dollar, which is uh, disrupting the markets heavily. Mm-hmm. One other area, and that's uh, directly tied to inflation, which I know is an area you want to get into, but it also mm-hmm. affects the way the economy gets reported. If you go back to the early 90s, uh, Alan Greenspan was making noises about how the CPI overstated inflation. Right, and if you ask them, well, why why is that why is that the case? Um, they say, well, um, if steak gets uh, too expensive, pe- people can buy uh, more hamburger. If they buy more hamburger, then their cost of living isn't isn't as high. Mm-hmm. And, and while that's accurate in a certain way, it might be a way to to, to use inflation if you're measuring the GDP. Uh, it's not uh, the way most people look at inflation in terms of adjusting income or. Or, or as an investment target, because they want to, they want to beat the pace of inflation uh, that they need to beat in order to maintain a constant standard of living. That's, mm-hmm. the way, that's the way it's always been. That's the way the consumer price indices have been, been for the past couple of hundred years. <clears throat> By moving to a substitution-based index instead of having fixed weight and measuring a constant standard of living, um, they knocked about 3% off the uh, reported CPI. That this was done in the early 90s. Yeah. With other changes in terms of what they call hedonic quality adjustments, where they adjust the quality of goods, um, or look at the, the sale, there's an improvement, a quality improvement here that really should be adjusted into the price. Um, that they've removed uh, any sense of the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, products being represented in the CPI as reflecting out of, out of pocket expenses. Consider, mm-hmm. for example, <clears throat> I mean, they, they, um, they've got thousands of people go around and survey goods in stores, and uh, they'll, they'll uh, measure the candy bar, and uh, they'll take the price of an 8-ounce candy bar. Next month, that candy bar, bar might be in the same size package, but if it's 6 ounces, in theory, they pick that up and they adjust the price. That's a legitimate quality adjustment. There are uh-huh. areas like that that, sh- that that should be done. <clears throat> An example at the other end is... Uh, this was a decade or two back. The uh, government put uh, put in place uh, a new um, uh, formulation standards for gasoline to improve the quality of the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, the effect was to add ten cents uh, per gallon to the the, the, the cost of uh, uh, cost of gasoline, uh-huh. which was a, a big percentage point at that time. Um, they didn't put it into the CPI because it was deemed to be a quality improvement. <laughs> Yet the fellow who was pumping the gas at the pump was moaning and groaning, I've got to pay more more for my gas now to get to work. I've got to be able to cover the higher expense. He wasn't thinking, aha, 
oh boy, I'm getting added value here because I've got better air coming out of my uh, mm-hmm. uh, exhaust pipe. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And the whole number, it gets very complex. And the time we have, it's not, uh, we could spend the whole time going sure. over that. But if anyone's just interested on my uh, on my uh, website, the, the, the homepage, upper right-hand corner, Shadowstats.com. on inflation that details all these things that have taken place. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> all I've done yeah. is I've taken the, what the government has indicated the change did in terms of uh, altering the annual inflation rate. And if you go back to 1980, with all the changes they've made, the idea of lowering the um, inflation rate of the CPI, um, they've knocked out uh, uh, over seven percentage points of, of annual inflation. Hmm. And that, that makes a big difference in the reporting. And I, I, I did hear at the end of your talk there, no, I'm not, we don't have, even with my numbers, any, anything close to a hyperinflation yet. Right. We're going to go that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason, well, we wanna, I'm sorry? Yeah. I was going to say we want to get into that uh, for sure, but go ahead. You finish your thought. Okay. Well, the reason talking inflation, deflation. The uh, from a deflationary standpoint, looking at it from the standpoint of the uh, either the CPI or the money supply, and I also try, continue to track M three, mm-hmm. which is what I would use from the standpoint of the money through the the, the uh, um, tracking money supply here because it is the broadest measure. It includes mm-hmm. includes the M1, it includes the M2, and a lot of funds that uh, move out of M3 into M2 can make M2 look like it's growing or, or shrinking, um, where the M3 is not, not changing much at all. Post-2008 panic, we did have a period of official um, deflation. You got down mm-hmm. a couple of percentage points year to year with um, the CPI, and you also saw that with M3. But I'll contend with the CPI um, that that really was not a, de- not a deflation. If, you, if they had measured it the way the historical CPI had been measured, the way prior periods of, uh, of deflation had been measured, uh, it, never, it never got below zero. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the fear of deflation, um, of, a, of, a, of an inflationary collapse like you had in the 30s, and indeed, is largely tied to, to what happened in the 30s and the failure of the banking system. Mm-hmm. When the banking system failed then, uh, you had a, a circumstance where a bank could go out of business. People lost the cash they had in the banks. There was no FDIC or anything like that. So as the banks failed, the money supply just dried up. The money supply contracted by a third. Uh, inflation fell by about a third. And... Uh, that I know is something that Bernanke had been scared of as, yeah. as this all came about. And back in his famous helicopter speech of 2002, he asserted that you know the central bank today could prevent that from happening because they could always debase the dollar. And that, that's what he tried to do, and he actually did with some success. Mm-hmm. And, and he actually created some inflation. But the inflation issue here um, is, 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 is several-fold. And... Um, as it's um, <clears throat> when you look at the, the the forces behind inflation, we have people today, well educated presumably, who will look at inflation and say, "Ah, you want to have inflation because that gives you a strong economy." Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, can, it can reflect a strong economy, but it doesn't give you a strong economy. Yeah, right. There, there, there are two ways you you, you get inflation here, um, at, at least. <laughs> 
But the, the positive one, to the extent there's a positive one, is when you have strong economic de- demand. The factories are working overtime uh, because of strong demand. They can't keep up with the demand. Prices inflate because of a shortage of supply. That's a relatively ha- happy circumstance because yes. uh, people are employed. Generally, the economy is positive. Uh, the not-so-happy circumstance is when you have a cost-push inflation from rising commodity prices, but not from the economic growth. And, and, and what Bernanke did here was to go for the negative inflation, the, 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 the economically negative inflation, by debasing the dollar, forcing oil prices higher, gasoline prices higher, and we had a bout of inflation that came from that. And if you look at the dollar up and down, and it's... And it's uh, uh, strength, it's a very key factor in the uh, price of oil and the price of gasoline. It's uh, very strong now, and, and oil is very weak. And I'll contend that there's a lot more going on to the oil price than uh, um, the real efficient uh, uh, production. I think we have a targeting here of uh, the Soviets by the United States and, right. and some economic warfare. Yes. But all yes, that, indeed. That, that sets the stage for the inflation ahead, um, but if you want to get into the where, where this becomes hyperinflationary. Yeah. Well, John, yeah. I mean, this is the issue that I, it seems to me that what we have now, I mean, there there's some reason for concerns of deflation, and and I think that's what the Fed, as you, as you were indicating, I mean, Bernanke did not let the banks go down this time in 2008, 2009. Had they, had they done so, we might have gotten to that deflationary environment that we had in the 30s, right? Yes, Absolutely. But they didn't allow it to happen, so they're not printing. Only did, not only did they not, although they, what they what they did was they um, they stepped in. They guaranteed everything. Forget whatever the FDIC was. Right. For. All 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 accounts were were guaranteed. They spent. Right. They created whatever money they had to. They uh, bailed out whatever firms they had to. They did whatever had to be done to prevent the system from collapsing. Because having the system collapse, and it was on the brink of collapse. Yes. Was 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 not an option to them. Okay, so here, here here's the thing, John, that I uh, that I that I think uh, I want to get your impre- your uh, your view on this. But it seems to me like if you look at the average household, the middle class is being decimated, yep. more and more difficulty. The wages, and you want to get to your inflation issues, and you you talked about why you think they're much higher. Uh, by the way, what do you think the inflation rate? If you use the pre-Reagan way of accounting, what would it be right now? Would we still be 7 8%, 9%, you know, what? It would be, it would be the, um, my, my best estimate is uh, 9.4%. That was your latest work and your latest, uh, latest yeah. estimate, yes. Yeah, exactly. So what we have, you can imagine with wages not going up and costs going up, the actual cost of staying alive, I'd say, for the basic things that you need, 8 9%, health care, all the other things, food, energy, whatever else you need to, just to stay alive, that's going up 9%. Wages, if you're lucky to have a job, they're not going up. Your wages are not increasing nominally. And so you're having a real substantial decrease in your purchasing power. Multiply that out. You say 70% or so of the U.S. economy is a consumer. Most of those consumers are finding it, are being pinched. So we're not getting the demand that you would need for hyperinflation it's not coming from the demand side of the economy, which would be a happier form of inflation, as you suggest. Exactly. But as I understand in my discussions with you in the pre, you know, previously, what is going to trigger this hyperinflation that you believe is inevitable is a collapse of the dollar. Is that right? That's correct. And, and what will the what, dollar what, in terms of its foreign exchange, foreign exchange rate? 
so that would mean the dollar vis-a-vis other foreign uh, other foreign currencies would be would be trashed. Does that mean that there would be some current foreign currencies that would be strong? Uh, yes, and uh, probably or relatively despite, strong, despite all the craziness that you're seeing in the market right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You have, um, I mean, if you if if you believe what's being published, uh, the rest of the world's in the recession, but the United States is not. Right, that's the propaganda. That's that's uh, that's nonsense. Um, what happened in 2008, everything that was done then, did not resolve the issues. It pushed the crisis into the future, and we're, we're still on the brink of that crisis. We're going, we're going to go through this whole thing again, only they don't, they don't have the, the weapons that they, that they had before. Um, the, uh, the economy is not recovered. Um, the banking system uh, may be somewhat in better shape than it was, but globally it's... it's you, you still have banking solvency issues, including in the United States. If you had normal banking circumstances in the United States, states the banks would be lending normally. The, the, the economy would be uh, um, much better off, the, uh, at least in terms of the consumption. Uh, what Greenspan did, noting that the, the problem with the consumer income goes back, back in time, uh, he encouraged a debt expansion to uh, make up for the shortfall on what income could provide. But with a debt collapse that came with a panic, that really be, that was no longer much of an option. And, and that's one thing that, again, drove the economy into the ground and has made recovery here so, um, so, so difficult. Um, the, where this becomes an inflationary problem is indeed with the dollar. Um, we, we've seen moments, glimmer, glimmers of where, uh-huh, that's how it's going to go. You go back to August of 2009. The Congress was uh, stalled over the uh, debt negotiations or the budget negotiations, mm-hmm. and uh, S&P downgraded the U.S. Treasury. You had a dollar-selling panic that followed that em- uh, immediately. There was all sorts of things done, interventions. The Swiss pegged the Swiss franc to the euro. Um, but the the rest of the world signaled what they were thinking at that point in time. Long term, the U.S. is insolvent, uh, what would be technically things usually in, uh, insolvent uh, countries if they have the ability to uh, issue debt in the currency uh, that, that, that they also print, um, they, they don't get, uh, they still get AAA ratings because it's assumed by the mm-hmm. rating agencies that they'll use the currency to pay off the debt. That's what's happening here. If you look at um, at, the, at the budget deficit, if you look at the, the, the um, obligations of the federal government, net present value, um, aggregate uh, obligations are right now about a, a $100 trillion. That's a net present values of the, the unfunded liabilities, such as Social Security and, and Medicare, plus the, uh, the, the, the gross federal debt. Um, there's no way that can be covered. It's getting worse by $6 trillion a year. Um, you couldn't even balance uh, six trillion in, in a year uh, um, without with any hope of uh, political salvation. Uh, okay, John, we're just about out of time here. I've got to ask you. So, other currencies will be strong vis-a-vis the dollar. It's hard for me to imagine which, at least in the what I call the Anglo-American Empire. I can yeah. see perhaps in uh, you know in China, Russia, where there's maybe going towards some sort of a gold-backed system, but. Um, but, but, so what should people be doing now? What should we well, be planning on doing? Very simply, uh, they, they should be buying gold and, 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 and silver. Um, those are the ultimate hedges here, physical gold and silver, um, historical uh, stores of wealth. 
You need to what's ahead, and as we as get the dollar panic, you're going to see the beginning of a sharp rise in the, in the cost push inflation. That with the rest of the world dumping it out, there's 16 trillion trillion dollars out there that can be dumped. You're going to see a sharp spike in inflation. Um, you, you want to be able to ride through this financial storm uh, with your assets intact. Uh, holding gold will uh, enable you to preserve the purchasing power. It'll maintain your liquidity. Uh, so that you come out the other end uh, able to function and uh, ho- hopefully survive um, in, in reasonably good shape. Okay, John, we're unfortunately we're out of time. I want to tell my listeners it's shadowstats.com, shadowstats.com. Go there. John has a lot of very interesting and important information that's free of charge, but I would suggest you consider taking out a subscription to his letter. It's an excellent letter. I've done it for many years. If you want to know, uh, get another view on what's really going on in the economy as opposed to what the propagandists are telling you, go to shadowstats.com. Thank you very much, John, for being with us once again. I hope we can do it again sometime in the near future. We certainly shall. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, next week uh, we're going to have James Perloff. He's the author of a book titled The Truth is a Lonely Warrior. And Jean Martineau, uh, the president and CEO of Dynacor Gold Mines, will be with me as well. You won't want to miss the next week's show. Both those fellows have a lot of important things to tell us. So I do want to thank you for listening, and thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 